Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Glad you could join us today. Want to want to tell you it's going to be a very exciting show. So, kind of tighten your belt or buckle your belts and, and sit back and, and be ready for an amazing ride. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his intro. Please check him out on the internet. He's a native storyteller, and his way of preserving history and cosmology is profound. And and it's a kind of way of recording history that everybody should take a look at, experience, and kind of put into their own lives. Uh, certainly, I tell stories to my grandchildren that I might not have told before, but but after listening to him and how their history has come down generation from generation to generation through their stories, I think it's an important way to pass on the knowledge and wisdom of the ancients. We have on with us today Jan Phillips, who is author of an amazing book called Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. She was, and this is from the book, uh, the book cover, the back. Uh, Jan Phillips was a devoted Catholic who wanted nothing more than to be a nun and who joyously entered the convent at 18. Two years later, she was dismissed for a dis disposition unsuited to the religious life with excessive and exclusive friendships. She was a lesbian. She had always known it. It was being homosexual that made her want to kill herself at 12 as far as she knew there was nothing worse than being queer. They were perverts, sinners, hated by God, hated by just about everyone. Lesies, bull dykes, fags, queers, and lesbos, all damned. And there she was, one of them. Still on Fire is a memoir of religious wounding and spiritual healing, of judgment and forgiveness, and of social activism in a world that is in our hands. She traveled the globe, 
on a one-woman peace pilgrimage, raised the consciousness of women, faced her privilege on a trip to India, and is working to dismantle social racism. The Living Kindness Foundation supports school children in Nigeria, which she founded. She says, any spirituality that does not bring about more justice, more social awareness, more right action in the world is a lame and an impotent excuse for faith. Her action for justice um, is, is her spirituality. Over the years, she created a life of love, service, community, and prayer. She evolved her understanding of God and, became, and came to see herself and all of us as the light of the world. She says, had I not been gay, my heart would not have broken in half, would not have opened itself to love supreme, would not have been tenderized by life's bitter pounding. She tells the story of her life with humor and compassion, sharing her poetry, songs, and photos along the way. And if that's not enough to grab you, grab this. She's taught in over 45 countries and has published work in the New York Times, Ms., Newsday, People, Parade Magazine, Christian Science Monitor, New Age Journal, National Catholic Reporter, Sun Magazine. She's performed with Pete Seeger, presented with John, Joan, Jane Goodall, sung to Gladys Knight, and worked for Mother Teresa. Her books have been endorsed by a ton of influential people, and, and she is still working, still going, still moving. I, I can't tell, tell you guys how big an honor it is to have her on the show today. Welcome, Jen. Hey, thanks for inviting me to this great show. I think we'll have a ball. I think so, too. I think that, that your journey is, is an amazing one, and it shows that, 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 a, that a spiritual journey is, is unique to every individual, and yet the rewards are so unbelievable, and the knowledge and wisdom you gained along the way is phenomenal if you're truly working with faith and honor and love. Yep, I think that's a good formula. Good for me. <laughs> Yeah, it 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 certainly did. I think that that your um, the way that you give your life story through the book with the philosophies that you've gathered is is really a tribute to honoring the the uh, journey you were on. Uh, you know, a lot of us have seen. I mean, today the the element of being gay is not does not have the stigma it did when when you started your journey for sure. But we honor, we, we are more accepting, not as accepting as we should be, but we are more understanding of, of people who have a lifestyle that is not, not quote-unquote, the norm. So you, yes, you even certainly... Though we've come a long, even though we've come a long way, Sadie, let's just acknowledge <laughs> that they're still killing us in the Middle East, killing us caning us, throwing us off roofs in Africa, and that gay kids are a whole lot more likely to kill themselves than straight kids. So I acknowledge with you, yes, haven't we come a long way, but don't we have some way to go? Oh, my God. Yes, and you know what I found interesting in 
you know, certainly your journey through through uh, becoming a nun was I found intriguing. And but when you look at some other cultures, the element of being gay is I, I, Native Americans, many tribes. You know, there there was no discernment. There was no they they were never um, isolated or or made to feel inappropriate. They were just accepted by everyone. And again, it's it's my my theme here that when the Europeans invaded this country, we destroyed cultures and and cosmologies that that were far and above better than the Christianity we were trying to cram down their throats. Absolutely, I totally agree with you. I don't even have so to that, add to it because completely laid it out there. Well, they were invaders. They were not anything other than that um but that's another story um but what what i find so fascinating is that you have put out a book here that that anybody can relate to even a child even even a young child can relate to the angst that you went through and and even though knowing you were different trying to explore that and and come to an understanding of 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 your emotional self and and what you were and the fact that you are perfect there is nothing wrong with you you are perfect is is very obvious through the entire book and i i really think that somehow it should be you know available to a lot more people because so many kids think there's something wrong with them and they're not they're just perfect that bugs me well, we hope your show does a good job of getting that book into more people's hands. Yeah, I think that, that it's something that, you know, I would love to see it in high schools or at least in colleges, but I'd like to see it in, in a place where, you, you know, it, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I'd love to see it be made into a children's book. And Boy. it wouldn't be hard to do. And if you made well, it into ahead. a children's, you know, if you made it into a children's book, so that so that you know, young kids between, you know, eight and nine and sixteen would be able to sit down and read it and have great colored illustrations and stuff like that, so that so that, that they would understand that their feelings as they are unfolding are natural, and again, that that element of you're perfect. There's nothing wrong with you. I mean, you know, you had a double whammy, I might say. You had you had the metaphysical side of you being able to see and, and understand things more deeply than most, and then you had your 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 sexual um, your sexual preferences that were different. So you had two things you were working with. But anybody who's grown up with you know being able to see people and understand them and read them and stuff like that is at a disadvantage as well. So that. So that it took it took a lot for you to get to a place where you you understood that you were you were okay and you had some amazing people that were helping you along the way. There were a couple of nuns that that helped you to find a better pathway for yourself. So you want to you want to fill those yeah. who have not read your you want to fill us in on on those of us, those out there that have not yeah, read your I'll book kind of. I'll give praise and thanks to the two nuns. First was my sixth grade teacher, Sister Helen Charles. And I was I was 11 or 12 when I started to realize that I was gay. 
gay wasn't even a word. That's a kind word. So, uh-huh. you know, we had the word homosexual, which is a terrible word, and all those other ones you mentioned, lesbian, queer, faggot, all those other words that there was no nice way of saying it that I was homosexual. But I knew it, and so then is when I thought I'd better just kill myself now because there was nobody who could love me. We knew from religion God didn't love us, and we knew from the culture culture hates us. My family was all Catholic except on my dad's side, and his side would be even worse, you know, hating straight uh-huh. people. So I was just going to kill myself, and it took me some time to figure out how what I, how I was going to do it, and I had entered sixth grade, and I was all depressed and just, you know, the natural me is, a, you know, free-sailing, high-spirited, highly vital person who's got a lot of, you know, vitality. And uh-huh. Sister Helen Faust noticed that something is wrong with this kid. And so she started a, a campaign She called my mom and said, something's wrong with your daughter. She's in the dark. We have to work to get her back to the light. Here's what I'm recommending. Because this new phenomenon had come out called positive reinforcement. So she tries to encourage my mom to do it. My mom was less enthusiastic about it because she had two other kids at home. But the plan was to affirm me publicly. Loudly, whenever I did anything good, just uh-huh. affirm, affirm her. That was the deal. My mom, I you know, I hardly noticed any difference in her behavior, but at school it was in spades all day long. Sister Helen Charles just affirmed the hell out of me. You know, <laughs> oh, Jan Phillips, you're the best speller in the room. Oh, you're so artistic. Please help me with the bulletin boards. Oh, you got the ha- Oh, you got the highest average. Oh, you got, you know, 90% of the votes for, you know, class president. Although, sidebar, girls can't be president or vice president. So even though I received like 60 out of 65 votes, I had to choose between secretary and treasurer. That's the time I grew up in. Yeah, so, me too. Sister Helen Charles, when she finally did the magic, I woke up one day and felt like some major transformation had happened. Like that sick little caterpillar had become a butterfly. And that's the day I knew I was perfect. I was a great light and I would be a force in the world. And so I started looking up and around and realized that it was a nun that saved my life. And whatever magic wand they have, I wanted one, too. And that's when I decided at age 12 to become a nun, to save kids' lives who were in trouble. So that was my primary motivation. Now, I had six years to wait to be a nun. And when I, and I was kind of a wild kid, I smoked a lot, I started drinking a lot in high school, just being bad, just, you know, trying to get it out of my system, because I knew once I went in the convent, there was not going to be 
any smoking, any wine and alcohol, any sex, any interesting things at all. So I imbibed as much as I could and then entered the convent <laughs> at age 18. And, you know, I loved the life because even though we were in training for vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, I just, I couldn't abide obedience. I was just not going to. I didn't trust authority by this time because every institution had let me down. So I Uh just was guided by my own conscience and did what I wanted, which is why I was kicked out after two years. But I really loved the monastic life. And I realized later that I got my form. I found the formula for bliss there. They didn't even know they were giving it to me, but I figured it out because I diagrammed how did they create a life for us in formation who were in training to be brides of Christ. But it was a rapturous life for me. I mean, I loved the balance. And what they had done is created a life that was balanced between community and solitude and prayer and service. And those Uh were the elements that, those are the elements I need for my life to be in perfect balance. Solitude, community, prayer, and service. So I do my best all these many years later, 60 years later. um, I do my best well, not quite six years, but I do my best to create every day that has those elements in it. So already today, I've done prayer. I've had my solitude in the morning. I just had my community with people. I had a great massage. And then I will do my service sit after this interview. So... I feel like privilege for me to have those two years before they let me go, even though that rejection rocked my world and set me back hugely because it was such a trauma that I took 20 years to get through and to finally realize that it happened not just to me, but for me and through me that I I co-created that reality that I was kicked out of the convent. Well, I think I love your nine, comment. Well, I love your comment about my heart would not have been, had it not been broken in half, would not have opened itself to love supreme and tenderized by life's bitter pounding. I mean, it's, it's magical. It's the, you know, the, 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 the religion the love there, you know, really helped you to get to a place of knowledge of yourself and then opened you to even more love once you left, eventually. Yes. Yes, it it was true. It took some time. I have to give credit to my spiritual practice 
for really being the arena or the milieu in which I opened myself to mystical experience. I don't think I had that kind of spiritual intelligence when I was in the convent because I was still a product of Catholicism, which uh-huh. basically shapes our minds and tells us what to think about religion, never how to think. So Catholicism for me was something I had to overcome and transform in order to have uh, spiritual freedom and to know that, to know for myself that I am a particle of the God who manifests as energy. The invisible part is the wave. The visible part is the particle. The the invisible part is divinity. The visible part is the material version of divinity. I think it's all creation unfolding, all of it supreme. Well, I I think that that in one place you talked about you learned in the convent to discern the difference between faith and religion. And Yeah, not from the I, nuns. I learned it from yeah. a priest. And it was okay. a very, very difficult journey because we were so indoctrinated into the Catholic Church that we said, uh-huh. when he said to us, Father Grabis, we're going to have you leave religion on the shelf and we're not going to revisit religion for the whole semester because you're taking up all the time to create your own living faith. That phrase alone scared us because we didn't know there was any difference between religion and faith. And now I know there's a vast difference. And in easy terms, in easy metaphors, I would just say religion is the menu and faith is the meal. Religion ah, is okay. the score. Religion is the score and faith is the music. Right? So right. we get to see that religion is inherited. It's something that's handed down and it's a bunch of doctrines and dogma and beliefs. It's intellectual. But uh-huh. faith is something that we create for ourselves that based on our ultimate concerns and commitments. So as a postulant in the convent, I learned how to create a living faith. And for me, my faith is that I will express my life as, as an advocate for justice and peace, that I will be a light in the world, and I'm living in fulfillment of what Jesus requested, that we be good Samaritans and that we take care of the poor 
and that we stand wherever we are. We stand for justice and peace. And that helped me when I was forbidden absolution from the Catholic Church, basically this community and this this disavowed, let's just say disavowed, disinherited from my church uh-huh. because I was I, because I'm living a homosexual life and they can't abide that. So I I could probably stay a Catholic in good standing if I didn't love anybody. If I didn't, you know, have any intimacy. But who who wants that? No, thank you. No. No. So I don't even need religion now. I mean, I have a Catholic imagination because I, I grew up Catholic. Sure. Everything I think is being thought through a Catholic lens. But I have kept only the beautiful parts of it, only the regal and the gorgeous and the sensual parts of my religion because I love that so much, all the music, the frankincense, the candles, the rituals, and the queen of rituals. And they also look and feel a little bit Catholic, but there's nothing there that insults the soul. There's nothing there that's patriarchal or sexist or non-transformative for me. So I'm a priest of the imagination. (laughs) I like that term. Um, you you spoke in the book uh, that your mother had trouble accepting you, and and that was it her friend or her sister that helped to set her right with Jesus's words that were love them all. It was her sister, and the two of them were on this charismatic Catholic journey, which is this Catholic with more emotions. They were venturing into reading the Bible, which traditional Catholicism doesn't really advocate for because they think Catholics need a priest to help them with everything. So Catholics, if you notice, are not big into reading the Bible. We get exposed to it, uh, to the gospel. We get exposed to it every Sunday at Mass, but there's always a priest there to tell us how to think about it. So anyway... What had happened to my mother's sister right before I came out to my mom was that, you know, they, her sister and her are one of 14 kids. And oh they all had many kids because they're Catholics, right? So <clears throat> I have 65 first cousins. Oh, my gosh. And what had happened? What had happened is two of them fell in love and got married. And started having children. So my Aunt Ruth's daughter married my Aunt Kay's son. And that was a very, very, very bad thing. It's illegal in most states, but the state that they were in, it was legal. So they got legally married. But the Catholic Church would never say it's okay. So my Aunt Ruth had to figure out how could she still stand by her daughter? How could she translate this terrible event through different eyes with a different perspective so she could look upon her daughter 
and her son-in-law as children of God, who God loves. So she worked it. It worked her. She worked it. She prayed over it, prayed over it, and came to peace about it. Right about the time that I came out to my mom, and my mom had a terrible time with it, primarily because she thought my father would have a heart attack and die if he knew. And so she was all committed to me never telling my father. And plus she knew it was a sin in the eyes of the Catholic Church. So my mother was a big mess over the whole deal. Wow. And she never wanted me to be home alone with my father because she thought for sure I'd blurt it out and he'd die on the spot. So <laughs> she woke me up in the morning. You know, I was living in California, but I had come home for a visit. And I was staying at their house, so she gets me up in the morning and says, come on, we're going up to the lake. Because up at the lake meant if we have a, you know, a, a, a rustic hunting camp that the entire family shares. And so you never know who's going to be there. But lo and behold, when we got up to the lake, my Aunt Ruth was there with their mom, my grandmother. So here we are, and as soon as we arrive, Ruth says, come on, Marge, my mom, come on, Marge, let's go out for a canoe ride. So they go out for a long canoe ride. I go for a long walk in the woods, and when I came back, I, I said to my grandma, you want to play gin rummy? Because my grandma always wants to play cards, so we're sitting at the picnic table in the kitchen playing gin gin rummy and she says how are things going (laughs) and I said well not too good I said my mom and me you know yelled and cried all the way up here because she's just having a hard time with the fact that I'm a lesbian and just as I said that to my grandmother my Aunt Ruth and my mom walked back into the camp, finished with their canoe ride. My Aunt Ruth hears me say that, and she goes, what's that about? And I I said it again. I said, Mom's having a hard time with me being a lesbian. And by now, we're all standing very close. The, the two of them are like sitting at the picnic table with grandma and me right there. Cards are spread all out. And my Aunt Ruth says to my mom, is that, is that true, Marge? And mom goes, yes. I, I don't know what to make of it. It's, it's a sin. It's a terrible thing. What's she doing? And my Aunt Ruth to her, look at the only thing that Jesus ever said was to love people. He didn't say anything about homosexuals. You know, he didn't say anything about who not to love. He just said, love them all. Love them all. And I don't know what happened or why. 
this moment occurred, but it was one of those miraculous moments where God itself dreams like sunbeams through the window and my mom <laughs> moment of reckoning and tears fell down her face and she just had this haunted look on her face which eventually turned to a smile. She goes, oh my God, I can't believe I'm this old and I've been this stupid. And then she looked at me and she smiled and said, Jan, you, I'm so sorry. You can do and tell anybody you want. You can tell your father anything you want. I love you and I affirm you and let's just make this work. And so then, of course, I didn't have this huge need to tell my father anything because I never had that kind of intimacy in my relationship with him. He was a silent kind of monkish man, a non-Catholic. Uh-huh. And he didn't have ac- access to his feelings. He was just, an, he, he didn't know how to be in the world and understand things with this kind of depth. And so I never had that urgency anymore to tell him. And my mom said he knows in his own way. I go, well, then let's keep it that way. I'm happy. But it was a turning point in my mom's relationship with me. I think that's a beautiful story. I really do. Um, I do, too. It's it's magical. And, And I would only hope that if needed that everybody had that kind of experience. Because there are so many kids growing up today who are isolated for lots of different reasons. I I taught special ed, so the kids that I worked with were isolated because of of other reasons. And um, I I can remember one day in class, they were they were several of them were really they they were just it was a junior high and they were crying because people were calling them all sorts of names, and, and we sat down, and I said, now look, the reality is nobody on this planet is perfect. Everybody has limitations. You're fortunate enough to know where some of yours are. Those people that are talking to you haven't even figured theirs out, or even the fact that they have limitations, or they wouldn't be here. So you're lucky. You have to feel sorry for them. And, you know... Everybody's tears got dried, and, and not too many days later, um, one of them came in shaking her head, and I said, what's the matter? And she said, that poor girl over there doesn't understand a thing about herself, does she? And I said, probably not. And she <laughs> said, well, I'll pray yeah. for her. And I said, you do that. <laughs> but it's kindness that, that, you know, can help so much that it's it's really an amazing um that's that's a beautiful story, um, but you you then took on um, your journey of of helping people to understand their rights and and I, I loved it when you said you had you felt that you had to go to other countries and you had to work on on spreading understanding and justice and and you just took off. It was it was amazing you. You decided you had a cause, and you waited for the cause to open the door, and you stepped right through it. Uh, you want to share that story with us, which I think is, is 
is fabulous. Well, uh, let's back up to how come I became an activist because I wasn't a social activist until I had started feeling the blade of homophobia. And that happened in a photography class where we were all doing these slideshows and the slideshow I did had a lot of lesbians in it and music, you know, it was, it was women's music, you know, put to photographs and slideshows. So anyway, it uh-huh. ended up being out of 80 slides and you might say, Oh, there may have been 12 to 15 with people identifiably lesbian, either in gay pride parades or wearing a T-shirt that says, I love younger women, or, you know, all the many ways that you can tell, because a lot of us are very visible out there. So anyway, at the end of my presentation, the professor was really mad. He told all the rest of the students to go out and take a 10-minute break. He lambasted me for you know, publicly doing that. And I I was flabbergasted. It's like, what? You don't want to openly see pictures of lesbians? What's wrong with this? There's nothing wrong with my show. You know, it's your perspective that's awry. And he just said he was not going to, he's just going to give me an ass in that. He was just very homophobic. I didn't know it prior. I don't know if it would have changed my behavior. But anyway, I never went back to that class. I didn't even, I never went back to that school. But what I did was leave the room. I was shunned by a couple of the students standing outside, but I just went right over to the professor who taught human sexuality because I had taken his class the semester before. And he always brings in people from the community who will tell their story about being social outcasts because of, you know, sexual preference or whatever you might call it. And so he had brought in a transvestite, a cross-dresser, I don't know, drag queen. They're all different, you know, they're all different from each other. But we got a lot of different perspectives on people whose lives we never understood because they were never in the media, only to be made fun of. So I said to him, I went to his office and I said, I want to talk to your class about what it feels like to be dishonored and basically disowned just because you're a lesbian. So he goes, okay, that sounds good. And in a couple of weeks out, I spoke to his class and that was my first, that was the threshold I crossed to become an activist. So first I was a gay activist, but I was also at that time heavily involved in the women's movement and reading all the new feminist literature. So I was also a feminist lesbian activist. And that all merges with social justice activism. And at the time, Ronald Reagan was president now, and he was doing this, I don't know, he had a campaign to bankrupt Russia 
And so they had this nuclear weapons buildup. And we're hearing about it now, I'm telling you, on the news, because everyone's afraid of Russia because they have more military, more nuclear weapons than anyone in the world, thanks to Ronald Reagan and that campaign. And it was during that era. This is the early 80s now. My becoming an activist was in the early mid-70s. So I've been an activist for quite a while when somebody leaves a book inadvertently, I think, but who knows? This is how the universe supports us. Anyway, someone left the book called The Hundredth Monkey on my workbench. I was was working as a picture framer part-time. And I read the book on my lunch hour, and the book is about how ideological breakthroughs occur through the transmission of new ideas, not necessarily through language, but sometimes just through our actions and through our intentions. And the story was about these monkeys on on these islands off of Japan who watched the baby monkeys to learn new behavior, which caused a breakthrough in the tribe of monkeys. It was basically about washing off your sweet potatoes before you eat them. But these supposedly the scientists are making note of all the different behaviors these monkey tribes were going through, and then they realized that an evolution happened in the tribe of monkeys when a, the hundredth monkey picked up her sweet potato and washed it off, and at that point, all the monkeys on that island adapted that new behavior and started washing off their sweet potatoes. And supposedly it, it spread throughout the other islands and all the monkeys on the islands around Japan adapted that behavior. It might be a hypothetical story, but it it lit up whole new areas in my brain. And I thought, oh, my God, there I was eating my lunchtime sandwich. I said, holy crap, I could be the 100th person. If it doesn't take language, if it takes mm-hmm. action and behaviors and images, I got those because I was already a photographer. I said, I might as well go around the world for peace because I was in a big, ang- I was having big anxiety over this nuclear proliferation that was occurring. Star Wars, he had a whole program. I know I don't remember because, you know, you got to be old to remember it. But he had a whole program called Star Wars, and we're going to build these, you know, stellar defense programs in the heavens. And it was a mess. So after reading that book, I went right over to the bank. I left the restaurant. I go to the bank. I give the teller a $20 bill, and I say, this is the beginning of a savings account. As soon as I get $5,000 in here, I'm going on a peace pilgrimage around the world. Well, she didn't know what to make of me. She's just chewing her gum and rolling her eyes. Yeah, right, honey. But <laughs> you know what? I wrote a big, huge ad, put it in Penny Saver, listed all the jobs I could do. And within a year and a half, I had my $5,000 in my savings account. I bought 200 rolls of film, 200 Kodak mailers, and I left with a big old backpack. And I started my peace pilgrimage in Japan, and Nagasaki, and Hiroshima. Lasted a year on my $5,000. Wow. So that's how I, that's how come 
it's like when you said she saw it in 42 nations or whatever, that was half of those were on that peace pilgrimage where what I did was share, I traveled with a slideshow of the peace movement in the United States, and then I had a slideshow of the women's movement in the United States. So people could see images because the picture's worth a thousand words, and I can't speak Japanese, and I don't speak Mandarin, and I don't speak Tagalog, and I don't speak Hindu. So whatever, I have pictures, they do, they do my speaking for me. So that's how it works. Well, I was I, I thought it was amazing that <clears throat> that you were inspired first of all to do this, and then basically you trusted to the inspiration to create a flow, and it did. And and it was almost as as if you decided you wanted to do something, and you put your energy into it, and then coincidences happened so that you were able to go in the directions you needed to go in. And and it's it's not that you that you sat down and said this is the, these are the countries I want to go to in this order or anything like that. You just were kind of I want to say guided because that's the way it feels that that a door opened and you stepped through it. You didn't question. You just went. Right, guided, guided by grace. It felt to me guided. I you know I knew I wanted to do a three-week trek in the Himalayas. So after Hong Kong, I flew to Nepal, right? So I did. I got to do some work in Hong Kong. I stayed with nuns in Hong Kong. I went up, spent five weeks in China because I met a man at the, at the picture framing store. I met a man from China who said I could stay at his daughter's apartment because she was studying at Syracuse University. And he met me in Beijing when I, you know, I took the 24-hour train from Shanghai to Beijing. And he met me there and took me to his daughter's apartment. And I interacted with him a lot during my five weeks in China. So that well, country is so mad. Well, the Himalayas has always been... Um just magical for me. I, 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 Nicholas Rorick did amazing paintings of it, and they seem to be a place where, where there's a spirit, there's an energetic that that has to be so profound, it's unbelievable. So to be able to trek the Himalayas, the Himalayas are big mountains. Um, were you just, you know, you know, did you actually climb the mountains, or were you kind of just wandering around them? No, there's a difference between trekking and mountain climbing. Yeah. But you do trek through the mountains. And there's I went up to 14,000 feet. There's no villages above that because people can't really live that well with yeah. such oxygen. And I went up to where the base camp is to Annapurna. And it's base camp. That's where the mountaineers begin. You know, when you put on yeah. all your rug, put on your rugged gear and your clampons on your boots or whatever it takes. But I don't have that gear, and I don't have that aspiration. But it took three weeks to trek. I'm just carrying my back a lighter backpack 
and I'm just walking on the same pathways that the villagers walk on, that the mule trains walk on. So when you see the men and women carrying their 100-pound bags of rice or flour or whatever else they're hauling up from Kokora, because there's a point where you can't take cars or trucks, Uh and that's where everything is done by foot. I did not have a Sherpa. I carried my own bag, but it takes one whole day to walk in one direction, and at the end of the day, you come into this little community where somebody will have a room for people on that journey to lie down. And somebody will have a room where you can get rice and vegetables. And you don't have to pay much for it, but you get your rice and vegetables and some homemade hooch if you're lucky. And you lay uh-huh. down on the, you know, on the little mat in the room next to where the acts are or whatever. And then you get up in the morning, and now you're going to walk down if you walked up all day. So that's how the trail goes all day up, next day down, next day up, next day down. And you're walking the Himalayas, but only up until 14,000 feet. And then you wow. turn around and walk. <laughs> An adventure for sure, but one for not the faint of heart. Um, Where was it where you, uh, it was the, I think it was China or Tibet or Tibet or Japan. I'm not sure where, where you came into the, um, the village and the school children were all waiting there for you. And, you know, they needed a teacher and and you made sure they got one. That, that was amazing. That was in Africa, and that was like 20 years later, Okay. 2010, because I had decided, you know, I did my peace pilgrimage, 83, 84, and in 2010, I decided I wanted to do some international work again, and I thought I should do it in Africa. Because I did not visit Africa to any great extent. I had only been to Morocco and the Middle East on that peace pilgrimage, but not down into the heart of Africa. Uh-huh. So I was looking around. You know, you got to put out to the universe what what you want, and then it and then it comes to you. So I thought, okay. Invitation to Africa, help me discern. I want to be of use. Area was women in education. That was going to be it. So anyway, then once I put it out, it took a few months. I get a call. Would I go to Nigeria? Because I had just written a a book for the business community called The Art of Original Thinking the making of a thought leader. And it was about visionary leadership, you know, triple bottom yeah. line, thinking, care, people, planet, profits, etc. So this nun from 
raised in Kansas, but she spent in Africa more than half her life, Sister Rita. Invites me to go over there, and for her Nigerian sisters, they're all Dominicans, do a, a weekend retreat, a workshop on visionary leadership for women religious. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. You don't even have to pay me, but you have to take me, because Sister Rita was uh, director of an NGO over there called Hope for the Village Child, and they took care of needs of probably five or six different tribal villages. So I said, I want to, in exchange, you take me to those five tribal villages you work with and then see what happens. Uh-huh. So that was the deal. So after the uh, missionary leadership tend, I went out to see these villages in the last village that I visited. It was mid-afternoon, and all these kids are standing out in their lines, separated by boulders. They have a what's called what's referred to as the schoolroom, but it's just a wooden structure about the size of a single wide trailer that has four doors in it for supposedly four classrooms. But when you go into those rooms, it's just dirt floors. No, sometimes there's blackboards, most times not. Sometimes there's desks, most times not. No books in sight. So all these kids that are standing up in the middle of the afternoon waiting for the teacher to come when they see this Land Rover that's carrying me. They race over to the Land Rover. They open up my door. They grab my shirt, and they drag me into one of the schoolrooms. And all of them sit down together, all different ages. All of them sit down on the dirt floor, and I'm there in the front of the room. They go, be our teacher. Be our teacher. <laughs> and I, I was flabbergasted. I, I didn't know what to do. I am not the. I am not that person who knows how to teach elementary school. I go, oh, what's two plus two? And they throw their arms up in the air and they yell out four. And they were their faces are just sparkling with joy and pride. I go, oh man, I got to make this hard on them. I go, what's eight plus seven? Never thinking they know that. Same response, 15, their arms up in the air, full of joy. I started to cry because it sunk into me that these kids were so hungry to be taught. And why aren't there teachers there for them? So through my tears, I go, Oh, my, this is your lucky day. I said, I'm here. I found you. And now I'm going to help you get a teacher here. And I promised them I would do it as fast as I could. So then I said, come, show me around your village. It was all just little fat cuts and, you know, little stone huts made out of just clay, put together clay, uh-huh. and 
tiny village, I don't know, maybe three or 400 people totally. And they were trying to learn about organic farming, and they had uh, some cattle, some chickens and stuff, but they're growing maize. And so I met the villagers, and I went afterwards. I said to Sister Rita, we, we've got to got to fix this. I promised those kids. What? How come there's no teachers? Well, there's no teachers because the roads are not navigable. So if it's been raining, you need a four-wheel drive Land Rover or you need a motorcycle. You need to get, you know, because those roads get covered with rivers and it's not navigable. She said, and there's so much nepotism here that some of the teachers are just nephews and relatives of the, the ruler, and they get paid whether they come or not. And so we figured out a plan. We went to the high ruler, I forget, the, the ruler of the village, Agamadara is his title, but he's like the tribal chief. And he lives at the bottom of the hill in a nice house with, like, people waiting on him. So we got an invitation to go to the tribal chief. We told him the story and asked him if he would donate some land. If we could talk to the villagers about building a building that would house two teachers and a learning center, would he donate the land? So he said, yes, he would donate the land if the villagers would make the building. So then we organized a meeting for the villagers, and they said, yes, if you had a building that where two teachers would live with an education center in the middle where we promised we'd get computers and stuff, uh-huh. then we will build a building. So I said, okay, let's go. It was time for me to fly home. So I said, Sister Rita, you get the price. You talk to the architect, get a price for how much it's going to cost. I'll go home and start a 501c3, and you let me know how much I need to raise. So in a couple weeks, I I went right away to LegalZoom.com. We started a 501c3, it's called Living Kindness Foundation. And Sister Rita emails me and says $25,000. It's cheap because they they make the bricks from the soil on the land. And there's no plumbing or electricity that they have to deal with because the latrine is outdoors and it's just a pit. And uh, we were going to solar power it. So that's what happened. I found ways to raise money. Some I wrote by writing grants, and some I made by having conferences called Women's Voices, Women's Visions, where it'd be a weekend that women would pay to come to. They'd have classes all day. We'd have great women talks, like women's head talks, but they were called Eve talks for expressing values that are evolutionary. And only social activists, 
only women that had contributed to the culture of justice were invited to speak. And they were, you know, our heroes, right? They're all our mm-hmm. heroes. So uh, we did that for three years. I got grants from sisters, communities around the country. And within four years, the building was up. I might say within three years even. The building was up. It had, uh, it was called the Living Kindness Learning Center. There was an apartment on one end for a woman, on another end for a man, if that was the case. And then I keep, I kept writing grants. We got 20 laptop computers, a ton of software to teach kids from all ages in like African relevant like languages and books and it wasn't inflicting, you know, anything from the American educational system. It was just cheap. It was African-specific software. And then at night, so it's all solar-powered, and, it, and after the kids are in there, then the adults go in there to learn more about organic farming and best practices for marketing. And so it's a real win-win. So oh wow! That's the living It's I have a, a website since George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tamir Rice and all the others that you know reached a peak a couple of years ago when COVID started and George Floyd was murdered. The work in Nigeria was done, and so I transferred my attention. To stateside, and now Living Kindness Foundation is funding projects that support uh, creative anti-racist work in the U.S. That's phenomenal. So we stay relevant. Yeah. Well, you certainly. So I'm proud of it. So you know, so to this point in time, certainly you've done. Amazing things. I mean, when when I was reading it and, you know, performed with Pete Seeger, presented with Jane Goodall, sung to Gladys Knight and worked with Mother Teresa, for Mother Teresa, I mean, come on, that's outstanding. There aren't many people that can, you know, write something like that down and actually have done it. (laughs) I know, how lucky moments, right? I think what happens is when you commit to do the good work and you do the good work, serendipitously, it happens that, you know, great doors open, great windows open. I mean, with the Pete Seeger thing, I was flying. I live in San Diego. I was flying to Westchester County in New York State to do a retreat for the Dominican sisters there who had just elected their new leadership team and I was going to go be with them for I don't know four or five days to facilitate them getting to know each other and coming up with a strategy for working together and while I was on the plane the Haiti earthquake happened oh my gosh and and one of the sisters on the new leadership team was more like me a grassroots activist and the other leadership members were more like Dominican leadership team, right? They were less 
inclined to think through a lens of grassroots activism. So while we were there in our first meeting, we were having lunch in the cafeteria, and the activist nun said, doesn't Pete Seeger live around here? And the nuns say, yeah, he just lives up the road because they were right on, we're on the Hudson River and his, he lives also on the Hudson River. So she says, maybe he'd do a, what do you call, benefit concert. He had just turned 90, I think. Maybe he'll do a benefit concert for Haiti. And they all just said, no, we don't have time to deal with that. Uh, we got to do this facilitation. No, 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 no. So they didn't pay her two hoots. But I did. And so when she got up to go, everyone went off to brush her teeth or whatever. I said, Betty Ann was her name. I go, Betty Ann, let's give it a whirl. I'll call my Pete and get Pete Seeger's phone number. I'll give it to you and you go call him. So I did. I call up Syracuse Cultural Workers. That's the org. You find out when you read the book. It's the organization I co-founded with a bunch of folks in 1982. And so I called them up because cultural activists, everyone knows and loves Pete. Pete knows and loves us. So they got his number. So I said, Dick, give me Pete Seeger's number. Okay, get the number. I hand it off to Betty, Sister Betty Ann. And then she comes back beaming, saying, he said he'll do it. This is like Wednesday, and it was going to be on Friday, or maybe it was Tuesday, but it was going to be a few days ahead of where we were, and we were going to have it in the sanctuary. So I said to Sister Betty Ann, okay, we're going to do without you for 45 minutes, and you go to your marketing people and your PR people, get this out in the television, make a press release, call the newspapers, do everything you need to do in the next 45 minutes, and then come back and join us. So she did that and came back and joined us, and joined us, and we started the work of, you know, our, our new leadership team facilitating la-da-da. And the next day, we get the newspaper, the little local community newspaper, and it says, California musician and Pete Seeger to do a benefit concert. And she was talking (laughs) about me, because I have three CDs out, but I am no performing artist. I mean, it's very possible to have a good voice and make a CD in private and not put yourself on a public stage, but... The press release said Pete Seeger and me were going to do the concert together. So I was horrified but challenged deeply. So the next day, Thursday or Friday, whenever it was, the sanctuary is filled to overflowing with like 400 people. I was able to, Pete Seeger comes in, and then Harry Chapin's younger brother, Tom, came in and wanted to be part of it. So we go into the little vestibule where priests put on all their garments and everything and to tune up. And Pete says, okay, this is how it'll go. I'll sing a song. Jan sings a song. 
Tom sings a song, and we'll just do round robin like that. So I thought, well, I can do that. I can do one song in public because I got a lot of good songs that everybody knows, like You Are My Sunshine, you know, just to kind of warm up the crowd. So that's how it went. I introduced, I I sang a song, introduced the evening, said the prayer, introduced Pete. He sang a song. I sang a song. Tom sang a song. And I slipped off the stage and never (laughs) to be seen again. And we raised $35,000. That's how it worked. Yeah. You know, it's, you're right. You put the need out there, and the universe answers it if, if, it's, a, yeah. if it's a genuine need. I mean, um, I have found that, that as well. When, when there's something that's really important that needs to be done, and it's done selflessly, then, then you find that things pour into you, and they, and they really um, – magically appear but it's not magic it's an energetic that you create by your sincerity and your light and your love and the purpose so that so yeah. that uh i think that's universal it's not oh, just, oh my god Jim, lucky her it's like oh my god you too lucky you you just have to figure <laughs> out who's turning around you and what's a fun thing to do to help them because joy always has to be part of the equation, you know. Absolutely. It can't be, I'm giving up candy for Lent. No. Give up yeah. talking bad about yourself for Lent and eat all the candy you want. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's, it's um, you, you certainly have that, that element within your, your, your life that is so sincere that, it, it is a magnet. It is an attraction for people who want to do good works to be a part, you know, to, to, to recognize that you've got that going. And it's, it's, it's something that people are, are absolutely drawn to automatically. So, so it's, you know, you've got, you've got a great combination there. The, the other one that, that, you know, I, well, I was fascinated with Jane Goodall and Gladys Knight, certainly, but Mother Teresa um, was phenomenal. Did you actually have a chance to meet her? Well, you know, I went and knocked on the orphanage in Calcutta because I had a guitar and I wanted to sing with kids, and I traveled with a bag of harmonicas. So, the woman asked me, was I there to see Mother Teresa? And I said, no, I'm here to be with kids for the afternoon. And so I didn't even know if she was home or not. But I just, I didn't care. What would be the value of me talking to Mother Teresa? Who needs that? The value is that I had something to bring those kids a sense of comfort and fun joy, teach them how to play the harmonica, sing them songs. That's where I was needed. I never have to have a conversation with a famous person. I need to be famous myself, be famously light and be famously joyful and bring, you know, gifts to people that don't have them. That's where I was required. So 
that's why I say I didn't work with Sister Mother Teresa or Mother Teresa. I worked for her, and I worked with her sisters also in Nepal. When I came back from doing my trek for three weeks, I saw that there were nuns, uh, missionary sisters of something is what they're called. You can tell them because how they dress, what their habit looks like. So I went up yeah. to them and I said, what's your work here? And they were hanging out sheets and there was monkeys all around and there was people dying and caught. They said, we're just tending to people before they die. And I said, what can I do? And they said, well, you could wash the sheets, hang them up, the dry ones, sit by the people, wipe their faces. And so that's what I did with them in Nepal. But when I got to Calcutta, that's where I went to Sister or Mother Teresa's orphanage. There's a ton of her buildings around, I guess, but I wasn't mm-hmm. inclined to talk with Mother Teresa. You know, Mother Teresa, when I think of her work, I always say, I say to myself, I don't aspire to be Mother Teresa. I aspire to be Gandhi. Because Mother Teresa goes out one by one, and she saves those kids one by one. She walks around, picks them up. Mm-hmm. There's orphans in the street. She gathers them one by one, right? But Gandhi yeah. says change the nature of the culture, right? Bring down class system. Bring down the racial structures, right? So I'm more in that category. I'm not the I'm not the Mother Teresa type. I'm more the Gandhi type. I think more structurally. So, you know, I just wanted to do some work while I was in Calcutta, and that's the work I did. Well, I think it's amazing. Are you are you planning any further travels, or are you kind of home for a while? I am not planning any further travels because... I can't walk. I don't walk well now because I don't have any, um, what do you call, feelings from my waist down. I have a combination of polyneuropathy and after, after being under a burning car for a period of time in Death Valley, I lost a lot of nerves. I had third-degree burns on my back and my legs, and I got numbness because so many of my nerve cells were burnt. And as a result, I mean, I still walk about, but I have a handicap sticker in my car because I can't walk at night, right, without help. So that's that's limiting my travel. I mean, I just turned 73. There's a lot of 73-years old people. I watched an 82-year-old pole vaulter in the Senior Olympics. <laughs> but, so it's not a matter of age, but my ability is limited by my inability to walk a straight line. So I'm really glad I did so many travels. I still go to Canada and teach, and I'm on the East Coast all the time teaching, and I can do, you know, I just don't international travel is a little more cumbersome. And now well, the COVID, you know, I'm out of. Oh yeah, 
Well, you know, your poetry and your songs, I mean, your poetry is scattered throughout the book, and it's beautiful poetry. And um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, you certainly have, you know, your your frequent flyer miles have got to be amazing. Um, so that So that the foundation that you've laid for your work is inspiring in 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 all manner shape and form if you had if you had though um a message to give out to everybody what would it be that if you wonder what's the purpose of your life it's to bring joy and goodness to the people around you. And when you figure out what's that thing that brings you joy, you will see how to plug it in to have your own life be a life of service for others. I always tell people, figure out what breaks your heart, what breaks your heart the most of all the crises we're looking at right now. Everybody's dealing with the crisis in the Ukraine. But then all of the, then, then we also wake up to the crisis of the burning rainforest, the crisis of the plastic in the ocean, the fish getting strangled on all of our plastics, right? The puppy mills and the dog mills that are around, right? The abusive animals, the, you know, terrible child abuse. All of, so each one of us responds differently to the social crises of the time. And I say to people, pick one. Just pick one. And put all the others up on the shelf. Uh-huh. And so then you say, all right, for a while I picked the rainforest. And that was it. For a while for me it was the polar bears. I picked some polar bears one year. And then I felt so bad because I was hearing terrible stories about how grim it was up there. So I figured out how to make a trip to see the polar bears. Because you just can't go up there on a Greyhound bus, right? No. You've got to go with a group of people because you can't wander about the tundra hoping to see a polar bear because then you'll get eaten alive. So I went with a group called Natural Habitats, like an ecological group. And they have a tundra buggy, which is like a big, huge bus on, you know, caterpillar tracks. And it goes out three or four days into the tundra where the polar bears are. And then they cook soup in the back for lunch, and the polar bears come up because they have this hugely wonderful smell scent. And they and on the back of the tundra buggy is a huge grate about 12 feet off the ground. It's like a fence. It's like an outside yard, about eight feet square. But there's no floor. It's just grated iron. So you can see below it and through it and around it. And the bears come up because they're smelling the soup. And we see the bears and they look good to me. And they look happy to me. And I watch them out there playing and frolicking and 
I had my happy dose of polar bears so I could let it go. And I know, I mean, outside every opposite, opposite every profound truth is another profound truth. So I know it's also true that they're suffering because of what we're doing to the planet. I'm no Pollyanna. But I saw them doing yoga, having a happy frolicking with each other, standing up, waltzing, dancing, sparring with each other. I saw the polar bears in their heaven, in their state of bliss. And so what I think is you identify your thing that breaks your heart and then you identify the thing that brings you joy. And when you put them together, something of value happens. Because I had to figure out how to get something like $5,000, a huge amount of money, to go on that trip. Because if half of it goes toward the polar bear fund, right? So making that journey was me trying to figure out how to help the polar bears. But I had to come up with, oh, my God, how am I going to get $5,000, knowing half of it would go towards educating us about how to do it better in, in the polar bear regard. So anyway, that's kind of how it works. And with the rainforest, I'm not going to go to the Amazon. I'm not going to go to South America and hold signs that say stop burning the rainforest. I am going to send what money I can to the Rainforest Alliance. I'm going to raise what consciousness I can by bringing it up at a happy hour or something, right? And any way you can. Any way you can. Yeah. Everyone alive should be able to figure out by now how to contribute 20 bucks to the Ukraine. That's all over Google Cross. It's all over. You know how to do it. You know how to find the organizations of integrity. Anyone can do it. Nobody has to sit around not doing anything. Today in my morning prayers, I said, oh, man, I have to find out where the Ukrainian community is. Over here in El Cajon is where everybody lives now from Middle East and probably refugees from Ukraine. And I'm just going to go over there and find them and talk to them and say, what can I do, right? How can I be useful? Because to me, that's grassroots activism. Absolutely. It takes some creative thinking. Well, I think that's a great message to end the show with, and and I think that that's something that all of us should do is is find a way to say how can I help, and then do it. And and I think yeah, do that, it because I, I don't I, feel like a slug watching CSI episodes every night because you got something to do, and you do it with other people. You know, Jewish Family Services is the one organization in my town that I go to whenever I have some extra hours or whenever my life frees up in such a way that I can do the good work because they always have it lined up for me, right? And so you just identify 
your your go to organization. It's not like I'm Jewish, right? You gotta yeah. it doesn't matter what the religion is. It just matters that they stand for social justice and they have opportunities for us to plug in. Absolutely. You can feed the homeless in the parking lot, right? You can drive migrants to the airport, you can help, you know, Haitian families make their way from getting the ticket all the way to the gate when they're going to fly to some family that's going to give them asylum. There's there's no shortage of ways we can be of use. There's just a shortage of ambition. And that's yeah. why people feel their lives are meaningless. But I'm telling you, my life is full of meaning and purpose and joy and rapture. And this It's never-ending. Well, I'm so grateful to you for writing the book and for taking the time to be on the show today. And uh, I'm going to send everybody. For anybody that listens to this, that if you go to janphillips.com and sign up your email, you'll be in my circle because I mail out a newsletter every Sunday morning. I mail out this a beautiful message to support your, you know, your spiritual journey, your creative well-being. It's called Bulletins from Immortality. I never send anything that's not uplifting for people. You can get in my circle. Then you can be less lonely. And when you, and then you'll know when I'm coming to your community because pretty soon COVID's going to be wrapped up in terms of isolation and we're going to start traveling around again. And I'm going to do Absolutely. a book tour. Okay. And, and that's why I wanted to say this. Now, I'm now recording an audible book, and so people that have trouble reading can hear it, and my music is on the audible book. Oh, how great. That's yeah. fabulous. So thank you for oh. doing this show and giving me an opportunity to say things. It's been my pleasure, and I look forward to uh, signing up and seeing where you're going to turn up next. Thanks again, Jim. Good. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's been a pleasure having Jan with me tonight, and I strongly advise that you go to, you know, janphillips.com, check her out, see what she's doing, and uh, check us out, too. This will be up on YouTube shortly. Good night now.